Mission Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, friends. Welcome back. This is episode 14, and today I'm talking to Regina Scott. Regina is the author of more than 50 works of warm and witty historical romance. Her latest collection is a series of novels set in the national parks in the U.S., So the first one was called A Distance Too Grand, and that was about the Grand Canyon. Her latest book, Nothing Short of Wondrous, was released October 20th. And that's mostly what we're going to discuss today. Nothing Short of Wondrous was set in Yellowstone. It was really interesting to hear about the history of Yellowstone National Park and to talk to Regina. So let's get started. Regina Scott, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Thank you for having me. Your latest novel, Nothing Short of Wondrous, released October 20th. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, It's the second in the American Wonders Collection. Can you tell us about this book? Sure. It is um, the story of when the U.S. Cavalry rode in to rescue Yellowstone National Park. Um, The first book in the series, A Distance to Graham, when I was researching it, um, I ran across this mention and I thought, wow, that's interesting. Why would the (laughs) army go to Yellowstone? (laughs) So that was sort of the genesis of of this entire, um, of the book is is what happened when they did so. And there are real life historical characters in the book that I've interpreted, but then it's told through the lens of my hero and heroine, my hero, who is a member of the cavalry trying to figure out how he manages such a huge place as this. And my heroine Mm -hmm. who runs um, one of the inns in the park. Right. Where did you get the idea for this collection of novels about our country's wonderful national parks? I started at the original one, A Distance Too Grand, was sort of, I originally envisioned more of a standalone. I just wanted to do something big and and bold, and you don't get much bigger than the Grand Canyon. <laughs> right. That's for sure. But Again, when I was researching it, I kept coming across all these interesting tidbits about other pieces of history. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is too good to pass up. I've, I've got to write these stories. Yeah, that's great. Um, what ties the books together? Is it just that each one is in an, uh, the location of the National Park or are there crossover characters? No crossover characters, at least not yet. Um, yeah. And they're actually even set in different years. So it might be a little tricky to do the crossover. Right. Um, but yes, that's the theme that holds them together is they're all set in the history of our national parks. Wonderful. Um, and then you mentioned kind of the inspiration for this novel. Um, what inspired the story, the, the plot of the novel? And can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, as I said, it kind of started with that germ of, of the cavalry riding to the rescue. Um, right. And then looking into it as I did more research, um, I was I was really stunned. Uh, the at this time, you know, Yellowstone was the very first national park. So there was no National Park Service. Nobody knew what to do with it. And mm. so there had been a lot of trial and error. And um, like the first superintendent tried to manage it from Washington, D.C. 
Um, <laughs> imagine how well that worked. Um, yeah. So there was a lot and there were competing interests. There were people that wanted to exploit it commercially. And um, it, it was very, um, it was very challenging to the health of the park. And so the army was sent in to kind of clean up Dodge, if you will, to get rid of the poachers, to um, keep an eye on all the formations that were being damaged by, you know, tourists who just didn't, frankly, understand what they were doing when they um, started carving their names and things. And somebody right. very industriously set up a laundry at one of the geyser pools. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so yeah. You can imagine what happened to the clothes when they shot, you know, 200 feet into the air. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the army, um, I just thought that was such an interesting story. So when then you, you fill out from there, all right, so what is it like to be one of these gentlemen coming into this place that you've never imagined before with these incredible wonders everywhere you look and being told you need to take care of all this? So how do you do that? Um, they were, you know, woefully outnumbered, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> who are your allies and, and who can who can help you? And then building out the my heroine, um, someone who cares passionately about the park, who moved here because she loved it so much and who who so wants so badly for it to be well taken care of. And so her incentive to guide the guides, you know, to guide the army and say, okay, guys, let's, let's try this, not that. Um, so it made, it made a good juxtaposition and then trying to build out their characters and, and make it a true story um, unique to those two characters. Yeah. Interesting. So I've been to Yellowstone a few times. Um, a few years ago, my family made a cross country trip. Um, we live in Pennsylvania and we were on our way from living in California, back to Pennsylvania. And we spent some time in Yellowstone. And I can imagine just being there. It's so beautiful. And there's mm. so much to see. Um, it's been called America's Wonderland, right? Right, yes. Is, is there anything else that drew you there other than, you know, the story of the cavalry? Just more thinking of when you, you know, I, like I said, I started with the Grand Canyon and then thinking what other what other parks really call to people? What other parks do people resonate with? And Yellowstone seemed like a natural one. I mm -hmm. probably could have done Yosemite after that, but Mount Rainier mm -hmm. is 45 minutes from my front door. So right. the third book will be Mount Rainier. I have to. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. We also, on the same trip, we went north and stopped in, at Mount Rainier. So Hi. I understand the draw there too. We hit a lot of national parks that year. Good job. That's wonderful. Yeah, it was so much fun. So many beautiful places. Mm -hmm. So this book, Nothing Short of Wondrous, takes readers back to 1886. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain more of the reasoning behind the cavalry's taking over the park and protecting it? Is there more you can share about that? Sure. Um they were competing interests. The railroad wanted to run tracks all through it to carry people here and there. Um, mm. People wanted to set up mining rights or logging rights, not really oh. understanding the importance of protecting a national park. 
Um, and the, the visitors themselves wanted souvenirs. So they lop off pieces of the formations, they carve their names and things. And, and there actually were dangers. I mean, there were people falling into hot pools and dying, you know, just people just didn't know what to do. So that was, that was part of, of the big problem. And like I say, it, one of the stories that cracked me up is that a high ranking, a wife of a high-ranking individual went to Moses Harris, the the real-life, you know, commander of um, Company M, and said, um, you know, you should gather up all the animals in one big pen so everyone will get a chance to see them. Oh, my goodness. You're kidding me. So not exactly what we think of a natural national park. <laughs> not at all. So can you talk a little bit about your, your research process for this book? Did you, I'm sure... You probably went to visit Yellowstone, um, but how I did you learn? I've been to Yellowstone in the past, um, so okay. I have a good idea of, of what things looked like and smell like. Um, yeah. But the um, I started looking for historical resources to really delve into that that time period and what was going on. And the National Park Service at Yellowstone has a phenomenal online collection. So wow. it was amazing to read these kinds of things. And um, Captain Moses Harris, the first um, commander there, his uh, reports to Congress are available online. So you can read all the things he's telling them that's happening. You know, the snowstorm in September when they weren't expecting one. And uh, wow. the lady that said, round up all the animals and put them in a pen and, and yeah, all these kinds of things. And, and his struggles with, you know, hello, you gave me millions, literally millions of acres to manage and one guide. We <laughs> need help. Um, so it, it was, it was, that's wonderful. And then they also have a national park historian assigned to Yellowstone. And so there were a couple times when I just could not figure out something and I would email her and say, hey, I looked at this, 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 and this resource and they disagree with each other. Could you tell me the real story of how this worked? And she was fantastic. I'm going to send her a free book. (laughs) Yeah. And I thanked her in the book because she was wonderful about answering my nitpicky little questions. You know, you, you want to get it right. So Um, Yes, she was. She was great. So I truly appreciate her doing that. Right. Um, Did you stay pretty true to history or I noticed in I think it was in the author's note that you have, you know, your main character is an innkeeper. So maybe you can go more into detail about your characters and and the story between them. Sure. Kate Tremaine is my female um, lead. And she is running a uh, made up in the Geyser Gateway, but it's based on a compilation of other inns that were available there at the park at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I had to delve deep into what, what were the concessionaires at that time? How did that whole thing work? And how long you know, were you allowed? And at that time, it was very piecemeal. So there was a little mm-hmm. inn here and a little hotel there, a little campsite here. Um, but it was starting to move toward that, the, the more the pattern that we have today with one uh, large group managing all pieces of the hospitality. Yeah. Um, so that factored into to the story. Um, Kate is a widow with a little boy. 
her husband died um, about a year ago, attacked by a bear. So that was mm-hmm. very, as you can imagine, traumatic for her. Yeah. Um, and she's doing her best. She loves this place. She doesn't want to give up. There are those encouraging her to take her little boy and go because what kind of person, what kind of woman manages a hotel all by herself in Yellowstone in 1886? But she loves it so much. She is determined to stay. So she's she's working very hard and trying to work smart to um, keep her in open with the pressure being added that the inns are being bought up by a larger corporation and a couple of corporations that want to take control of Yellowstone. And will she give in to them? Mm. So she knows she needs help, but it's not always easy when to find help, <laughs> to find people right. who want to come out and live in Yellowstone um, and to, to afford help. So when um, she realizes that my hero is desperately trying to figure out his way around the park. Um, what the army did was uh, Company M split up uh, into six or seven detachments and stationed them at the main tourist areas around the park. So he's been stationed there with her at the lower geyser basin, but that's still hundreds of miles he has to manage yeah. with um, a total of six people. So he's trying to figure that out. So they agree to um, basically barter. He's going to help her around the hotel, you know, fixing shutters and cleaning out flues and re-roofing and those kinds of things, um, while she will help his men um, guide them around the park, tell them what they should be watching for, that kind of thing. So they, they mm. agree to this, this partnership that gradually starts becoming something more. Right. How did you decide what you know, where to take literary license with, with things, um, such as the hotel versus how to keep things close enough to how they actually were in the park at the time. Sure. I tried to, initially I tried to stay very, very close. And then I realized by doing so, I maybe was being unkind to people to be a villain. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, you need somebody that, that some antagonist, some, some issue that they're working against. And, If Mm. I used real life people, then I was ascribing um, negative motives to them that probably weren't there. So that that didn't seem fair. So where I needed to be able to um, maybe make up my own rules for how she managed her in or um, the people who were trying to buy her out, I made those up because, I again, I didn't want to ascribe too much to historical characters. Where I did stay with the historical characters is where I knew I had their words in writing, I had stories about them, I had pictures of them. And so I could, I felt somewhat comfortable interpreting their their words. Um, In some cases, some of the words that Captain Moses Harris uses in the book and Lieutenant Kingman, who was building the roads at the time, um, those are those the words that come out of their mouths are actually words that they wrote. Oh. So I not all the time. Sometimes I had to interpret because I put them in situations that they didn't write about. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I tried very much to be true to what I could find out about them. Hmm. That's cool. Um. Yeah. I know from you know writing myself. I've written a few novels, and mm. I know there's a certain point when you have to stray from 
exactly what happened because it is fiction. And um, I feel like that's maybe a different place for each author or maybe just each story. It's just different. Definitely, definitely each story. I mean, sometimes with the Grand Canyon story, I had a lot to go on, but not as much. So there had to be a lot more made up in that one. But um, Mm. as I said, this one had such rich um, resources available. Um, The Yellowstone National Park website even has a a sound page, a, a set of sound files. So you can listen to what paint pots sound like when they're bubbling. Oh, wow. That's it's cool. great. I loved it. It was, it really helped bring things yeah. to life. Right. Um, so it's said that in your novels, you mesh humor and history with romance and adventure. What do you hope readers will take away from your books? I hope, when I hope it makes them smile. I hope they come out from the book thinking, well, that was good. I, that, that kind of uplifted my day, you know? Yeah. And two, I hope they come away believing in possibilities that, that we all have a place in this world where we can contribute, that we all have a possibility for achieving our dreams. So I was amazed to read that you've written more than 50 works. And I don't know, does that mean 50 full length novels, 50, um, including like short stories or novellas? That does include a few novellas. I think at last count there are five, either four or five novellas. But um, yes, that, but, that includes those. But still, you've, that means you've written close to 45 novels, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so can you tell us about your career and... Um, how and when you got started, what led to that first book contract? I have always wanted to be a writer ever since mm-hmm. I found out in third grade that, that, the, that somebody wrote these books you know, that <laughs> I'm reading and I love. Somebody wrote them. I want to be that person. You know? Yeah. So I always wanted to be a writer. Um, it, it took a little while and, and trial and error. And I give my husband full credit because when we first got married, we were talking about how you define yourself as a person. Mm. And I said, that's easy. I'm a writer. Mm. And he said, you're not a writer. You never write. <laughs> oh, I was so mad at him. I don't think I talked to him for two hours. I walked oh, around the house. Goodness. I was just furious. Couldn't he tell what was wrong with him? This was the man who married me. This is my soulmate. He doesn't understand me. Um, <laughs> And then I started thinking, I thought, okay, you're in a very challenging career that requires you to work close to 60 hours a week. You just got married and are figuring all that out. And yeah, when was the last time you wrote anything? (laughs) So he was right. And that inspired me to really knuckle down and finish a manuscript. Um, mm. and, um, I, I'd actually finished a lot of manuscripts over the years, but you know, those old books under the bed kind of thing. Yes. Um, but to really work hard and finish a manuscript and send it off. And, um, I was stunned to get a call. So that started it. I started out in, um, Regency romance because that's another time period I adore. Yeah. So I've written quite a few in that time period and I've written mm. for different publishers over the years. And now I'm dabbling a little with self-publishing just because there are things I want to write about that that 
and write a little more often and write about that it's hard sometimes to find a place in traditional publishing for them. So um, that's fun. I just keep keeping it new and different and just enjoying myself. Right. Good. So what can you tell us about what you're writing now? Well, I just finished the manuscript for A View Most Glorious, which will be the third book in the American Wonders collection. Um, set on Mount Rainier. So that's in with my editor and we'll see what she thinks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the meantime, I am working on a Regency that is set in my little uh, spa town of Grace by the Sea in 1804. So it's one of those that juxtaposes sort of the the traditional Regency as, with the spa and the balls and the sh- and mm. shopping and that kind of thing with a time period when Napoleon is massing troops across the channel and any day could invade and England is pretty jittery. So it's, it's meshing those two things and I'm having a lot of fun writing about those characters and their situation. Wow, neat. So your book, the first book in this series, A Distance Too Grand, which you mentioned is about the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, it was recently named one of the top 10 romances of the year by Booklist. I know. Stunned. I'm so <laughs> stunned. I'm so stunned. It's, I, it's actually funny. I got an email from Booklist because they have been so generous. And during the pandemic, they have made all their, their um, archives and things available for free without a subscription mm. to people, which is just so generous. And so yeah. the, I've been getting things from them, you know, because right. of that. And I re- I saw the email come in. It said the top 10 romances of the year, including one spectacular historical. And I thought, oh, that's not me. And I didn't read any farther. Oh. <laughs> I threw the message away. <laughs> and so and, uh, friend of mine who reviews for Booklist, he did not review the book, but he does review for Booklist, sent me a note and said, congratulations on making the top 10. And I'm thinking, what? What are you talking about? So then of course I had to go out and look and I was just stunned. It, it's such an honor to represent mm-hmm. the historical genre um, and to have them choose that book as one of their top 10. That's amazing. I'm still pinching myself. Yeah, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so this is a question I ask every author who comes on my show. If you've listened at all, you've probably heard me ask it. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I think two things. Pe- one, people are always saying, you know, we, we have to really understand history so we don't repeat it. I mean, so there's that side. But I think there's a positive side too, and that is we need to understand what went before so we can build on it. Um, mm-hmm. So we can we can learn that this isn't the first time there's been challenges to our national parks, and we still need to be protective of them, and we still need to ensure that they go on into the future. So it, it that's just an example, but I do believe that by understanding our past, we can be better stewards and better um, purveyors and, and better people here now in the present and as we go into the future. Right. So I, I also like to ask, who is your favorite historical fiction author? Oh, wow. That is really hard. 
Um, you can imagine. <laughs> Nobody I, likes that question. No, it's hard. You, you there's so many that I enjoy. Um, Karen Whitemeyer, Jen Tarano, uh, Lisa mm-hmm. Lisa Clausen, um, Christiane Hunter. Oh yeah, she was uh, on the podcast. I don't know. If oh you heard really? that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Marissa Doyle. Oh my gosh. I could probably go on forever. <laughs> Can you think of one, um, one book you read this year that you would recommend one historical fiction novel that you'd recommend? Probably if I had to pick one, it would be Karen Whitemeyer's uh, first book in her hangers horseman's new series um, called it loves command. That was just a great kind of, Western, like the, the perfect Western with a strong hero and a feisty heroine who's just his match head to head. And it's a great story. Mm, wonderful. So, Regina, it was great talking with you. How can listeners purchase your new book? It is available at bookstores everywhere, fine online retailers, and Baker Publishing Company online. Great. Wonderful. What is the best way for listeners to find you online or follow you on social media? You can find me on Facebook and Pinterest. I love pinning, so I'm I'm there fairly frequently. <laughs> um, and uh, my website at www.reginascott.com. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you have enjoyed this podcast, will you please subscribe? Um, And then if you could leave a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, that would be fantastic. Also, if you want to read the show notes where I have links to the books that we discuss and other things of interest that come up during the interviews, um, you can find those at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash blog, B-L-O-G. Now, friends, be sure to tune in next week. I'm going to be releasing the episode early on Tuesday instead of Thursday, because next Thursday is Thanksgiving. I'll be talking to S. Daniel Smith about his Christmas book, Saving Ebenezer. His book released last year, but he'll be running a special sale next week, so you'll be able to get it before the holidays. I'll leave you with a quote from Theodore Roosevelt, who said, there can be nothing in the world more beautiful than the Yosemite, the groves of giant sequoias and redwoods, the canyon of the Colorado, the canyon of the Yellowstone, the three Tetons, and our people should see to it that they are preserved for their children and their children's children forever with their majestic beauty all unmarred. That's our show for this week, my friends. Keep reading historical fiction. 